Hello and welcome to episode 13 of God's Own Scale. I'm your host Sean Clark and today I've got an interview with John aka Willwind from Heretical Gaming Blog. John's blog has been running for a good few years and concentrates on mainly 6mm gaming across a wide variety of periods and he plays a lot of games using the Polymos rule sets from Bacchus as well as some from uh, WRG, Wargames Research Group and others. It's a fascinating discussion into one man's hobby, recreating not only historical battles throughout history, but also playing long-running campaigns in the main through solo play. If you enjoy 6mm historical games, I think you're going to enjoy it. Hobby news that's caught my eye over the last week or so. Uh, there's a new company to me, uh, I think they've been a while, around a while, but it's a new one to me called Battlescale. Uh, they produce a range of scenery and buildings in a range of scales, but a very good 6mm range. And in fact, uh, just doing the research for this episode, I've just placed a small order of build, uh, for some buildings to go with my Mons 6mm game, my Great War Spearhead game that I'm going to be, or that I'm building currently. Uh, and I've just put in a large order with Levin or Levin miniatures, uh, for, particularly for the Mons specific buildings that they do like the uh, swing bridge over the Condé canal um, and the lock that they do which will represent lock number five which features as one of the objectives in the Great War spearhead mon scenario but uh, battle scale look very nice they've got certainly a couple of uh, Dutch Belgian type gable uh, houses and a couple of more generic European townhouses and f rural buildings and farmhouses etc so I've, I've put a small order in with them to uh, have a look at and uh, include in the setup and they can be found at battlescale.com uh, another company uh, producing a wide variety of products is tiny wargamer now they have become well known for their gaming mats which seem to have become quite ubiquitous in the hobby over the last few years replacing the like of the polystyrene tiles or two by two squares of chipboard that we used to use back in the day uh, the the gaming mat has really taken off and is such a convenient way of putting on a very nice looking surface on which to play that can just be folded up and then put into your gaming bag um, Tiny Wargamer have got a huge selection. I think they describe themselves as the largest, uh, the world's biggest collection of wargaming mats. There you go. Uh, that's from the website. Uh, but they've just released a range of photorealistic mats. And the first of which that I can see is a Viking beach mat. That looks lovely. Um, I'm sure people have found many uses for that. Interestingly, uh, they don't only make the mats available in cloth and mouse mat, which most other companies do but they do it in lino as well it'd be interesting to see what that feels like and and how that plays um i, I can't quite imagine it myself but it's clearly a, a material that tiny war games have got some faith in so have a look at their website at tinywargames.co.uk 
Alongside this new segment that I've decided to start each podcast with now, I'm going to give a shout out to a blog that's caught my eye or one that I've been following for some time uh, that might have some 6mm content or otherwise displays excellence in wargaming and promoting the hobby. For the first blog of the week, I'm going to direct you to www blma that's bravo lima mike alpha blog.com and that is big lee's blog now big lee has been blogging for some considerable time um, he's a six mil gamer as well as uh, other scales but he does some lovely stuff in six mil he's got quite a collection of ancients uh, and something that's just perked my interest over the last couple of weeks if anybody who's followed me on twitter might see i've got a super secret project codenamed dorks rift um and he does he's got a, a sizable collection of anglo zulu war in six mil mainly through using bacchus miniatures but check him out he's also got a youtube channel i think he's only started during lockdown look out Big Lee on YouTube and look at some of the videos that he's put up and the blog has just a wealth of content that you will lose yourself in for several hours I would suggest on first sight two other things I want to mention one is Little Wars TV long term listeners to the podcast will know that I'm a huge fan of Little Wars TV and the content that they produce Um, I had a lovely chat with Greg Wagman from Little Wars TV last year uh, talking about the YouTube channel uh, and the rules that actually Greg produces. I just wanted to give them a shout out because season two has wrapped up um, a few weeks ago now actually but uh, anybody that hasn't yet discovered Little Wars TV you must get over and check them out on YouTube because it is like watching your favourite TV show on YouTube talking about wargaming um, just type in Little Wars TV into Google and it'll come straight up there's been two seasons now of the show doing historical battle reports in the main although there is one science fiction battle report uh, but it's Star Wars so God's Own Scale is offering the olive branch of friendship and forgiveness to Little Wars TV Uh, it is it is actually an excellent episode any Star Wars fan and any gaming fan will enjoy it but the content is fantastic Uh, they've got some really great tutorials on there for making scenery they have lots of historical battle reports And again, with my interest being piqued around the Anglo-Zulu War, there is a fantastic recreation of the Battle of Asandalwane that Steve from Little Wars TV produced, painting over 2,000 6mm Zulu figures. Um, So not only check out their YouTube channel, but there is a website for you to have a look at littlewarstv.com on which there's a heck of a load of free content on there with rules reviews um, and discussions about each episode each 
historical battle that they refight. They include the scenario so you can refight it yourself uh, on the free stuff section of the website all you have to do is sign up with your email address it's, it's free of charge and, and just log in and benefit from the wealth of content that Little Wars TV have put out there now if you go there now the header on the website is uh, the summer update because anybody who follows Little Wars TV and myself included I'm eagerly awaiting season 3 and hoping that season 3 uh, will be somewhere down the line I fully understand it's a huge undertaking for the members of that club to produce the content that they do particularly to the quality that they do and I did discuss this with Greg you go back and have a listen to that episode where he talks about the commitment that it takes because any content producer will know that producing a podcast or a YouTube channel or a blog as in Big Lee's blog uh, and hundreds of others out there takes time away from painting the little men and actually gaming which is what we are in the hobby for but the standard that Little Wars TV achieve goes above and beyond I think just about anybody else out there in the hobby world with the content that they produce on YouTube um, it, it really is fantastic so if you go over and just check out the update the summer update um, where the question is asked when is season three they talk about their plans for season three and talk about an initiative that they're looking at about getting new people into the hobby which will be really interesting to see what they come up with I really hope that they carry on with some of their historical refights across history and keep to that same format but I know that they are looking to reach out to new people coming into the hobby and making the hobby feel far more welcome one of the other things that they mention within the summer update is the concept of funding the channel through patreon now a lot of the content that people produce and whether that be podcasts or YouTube channels doesn't come free whether that be for equipment such as microphones or cameras or hosting sites on the internet and that will come out of what is at the end of end of the day limited budgets so it looks like Little Wars TV may go towards a Patreon model whether that will be for all content or just some Patreon exclusive content with the majority remaining free I don't know but I would say personally very similar to Henry Hyde's Patreon uh, where you pay a small sum and it really is the cost of a Starbucks coffee or a pint of beer or a pack of sandwiches from the filling station that's all we're talking about um, to support these content producers is for me vitally important um, so as I've said before throw some shekels Henry's way but if Little Wars TV do go down the Patreon route which it looks like they may be seriously considering I would heartily recommend that you forego one cup of Starbucks coffee or one packet of sandwiches from the filling station or one pint of beer a month 
and throw that money instead towards Little Wars TV Patreon to support them in producing some of the most high quality content available in the hobby for everyone to enjoy. We've had two seasons now of Little Wars TV for absolutely free and that will remain up on their YouTube channel regardless of their decisions in the future. But season three going forward I would like to see Little Wars TV to be an ongoing long-term project for Greg, Steve, Chal and the rest of the team there in the club and as I say for the cost of a Starbucks coffee or a packet of let's face it not very tasty and unhealthy sandwiches in the filling station once per month will be well worth the cost so littlewarstv.com is the website uh, to go over just read their uh, summer update and and see what they are discussing for the future and please 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 support them when if and when the patreon campaign launches okay uh, and the last thing I want to mention before we move on to the interview this has been a longer section than I intended but the last thing I would like to mention is the annual great wargaming survey run by wargames soldiers and strategy has launched I think it's been going now for three or four days um, it's well worth taking part because not only do you provide some very interesting and important data for WSS to analyze and then release to the masses to see where this hobby is going but you also get free stuff at the end of it so that I think there's a voucher for um, all game soldier and strategy uh, products I think it's 20% off and also there's some free online articles for you to take a look at as well as one or two other financial incentives that make it well worth you spending the 10 minutes it will take for you to fill out the survey so that is um in fact i'll put a link up in the show notes because the the website is um surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash t5h2lvp which trips off the tongue but uh if you go to the wss website or just type in the Great Wargaming Survey 2020. That will direct you to the website. Take 10 minutes to fill out uh, the questions, uh, one of which will become pertinent um, at the end of the episode when I talk about hobby budgeting and fiscal responsibility, which I'll, I'll discuss further. But yep, fill it out. I always think it's even if you only have a passing interest in in the results i do think it's well worth you taking your time i think last year was the record they had the record number of uh, participants in the survey so it'd be great to beat 2019's total this year um it's been an unusual year as we all know for a host of reasons so let's see how that has influenced your hobby this year and see what comes out of it once the results are in okay so it is now traditional for me to say that's enough of me wittering on you're not here to listen to my voice you're here to listen to the interview and my guest john from heretical gaming so 
Let's talk about sex. Uh, okay, welcome to episode 13 of God's Own Scale podcast. Episode 13, Unlucky for Some. Uh, whether that's unlucky for my guest or not, I don't know. Um, but I'm going to introduce him as John of uh, the Heret- Heretical. Heretical. Is that the right way to say it? I've suddenly had a, a, a bit of stage fright moment over pronouncing <laughs> the name of your blog, John. But yeah. welcome to the podcast, anyway, John. Many thanks. We're really pleased to be here. Good. And I know we've uh, been communicating uh, for a while about getting you onto the podcast because uh, I've been a long-term fan of Heretical uh, Wargaming, uh, the blog, and uh, you are one of the. I will say you are one of the leading content producers for Six Mill. Uh, across the internet and I know we've just had a bit of a pre-ramble where we've talked about other people that do it but I st- I'll stand by my comment that uh, you, you are one of the most prolific uh, posters of six mil content uh, for which I, I thank you because the the whole purpose of this podcast was to advertise six mil and s- some of the smaller scales as well uh, occasionally but principally six mil to, to put it in the public eye and You've seemed to have been doing that for some time. Yes, uh, this blog, I think, has been going for about eight years, although I had uh, two previous attempts before that, which uh, failed for various reasons. Um, I've never I've never seen the idea of the blog to promote six millimeter, um, even though, as you say, that's the vast majority of my gaming is in that is in that size. Um, But what I did want to do was connect with other six millimeter gamers um, and this has been one of the best ways I've found to, to do that. Um, six, other six millimeter gamers um, are interested. They do get in touch. They do put uh, comments. They do link me to stuff that I'll find interesting. And so I do see myself as part of that community, even though it's not strictly speaking to promote six millimeter. Right. That, that wasn't the main purpose when you set out. No. Well, right at the beginning, it was, it was to, uh, Put, have somewhere to put my campaign uh, information. I kept it uh, private for a long time, actually. Um, the especially the first two first two attempts, it was it was just a better way that I could access anywhere of keeping record of my own games. Um, so having it public facing actually came kind of two or three years into the process. Yeah, uh, I, I can see the the um, desire to do. I, I've run or attempted to run. A couple of blogs over the years, but for whatever reason, uh, they always seem to fall into disuse after a certain amount of time. It takes, I think, it takes a certain amount of commitment from the blogger to maintain that enthusiasm and to maintain that fresh content on there. Yeah, very much so. Although, um, well, it's been a long time now, but if I remember rightly, it wasn't so much that I wasn't updating them they that I got rid of the first two. It was that the campaigns that they were recording kind of failed you know that I, I hit some some obstacle that I couldn't get around or I realized I designed the campaign wrong and then because the campaign had failed I got rid of the blog now being a bit older and wiser I realized there's just as much value 
in sharing why that went wrong and, and why you've come to a stop and how you're going to do better next time. Um, but as I say, it was mainly kind of a private effort for myself to begin with. So I didn't really think of the value. I, I wouldn't make those mistakes again, I, I hope. Yeah, and, and, and I guess you can't, you shouldn't call them failures. They're just points of learning, aren't they, that uh, you will uh, adapt and, and react to, I guess, as uh, you go through. Well, well but, yeah, very, very much so. The, the more recent campaigns I, I've fought, then um, I've explicitly included that as part of the process. Um, if you kind of read in detail, when I'm beginning a, a new campaign, I, I say, this first attempt will probably fail. I will, I will do something wrong and I will find it um, better for myself to just say, right, calling that test, going back to the beginning, take that as a mulligan. Um, because sometimes the only way to find out where the pitfalls are, are not to think about them, but you have to actually play the campaign and then it goes wrong and that yes. enables you to put it right in the future. Uh, it's something I find fascinating. I've, in all my years of gaming, I've never actually... Uh, participated in a, ca a campaign of any uh, any substance really so we'll d we'll dive into your thoughts around campaigning uh, shortly but um, just for the benefit of the readers then John I'll just want and I do this with every guest um, just have a let's have a little bit of a hobby biography if you like uh, of how you got started in the hobby and and what led to where you are today with it okay um, there were certain similarities, I think, in in my story with Alex's story. It, it was Alex, wasn't it? Uh, yes, Storm uh, of Steel. From Storm of Steel uh, Gaming, yeah. yes. Uh, in that, um, when I was very young, um, I was I was given Airfix and Esky soldiers and really loved them. Some of the earliest uh, photographs of me still ex existing are of me playing with uh, the Airfix US paratroopers in right. uh, in the park in Harrogate. Brilliant. <laughs> and. Um, I was, you know, I was very happy, very contented with that. Then, when I was either seven or eight, a long time ago, can't remember the, uh, can't remember the exact year, but around then, uh, one of my friends at school brought some of his dad's six millimeter micro tanks okay. in on a, on a, you know, show and tell, bring your own toys uh, day, and he set up this little scene, and I was absolutely hooked from that moment onwards, really, um, with the possibilities of of how you could kind of get past just moving figures about and going bang, bang, yeah. because he said that my dad does wargaming. Now, um, he was seven, so he didn't really have, he wasn't really able to explain that in a very, uh, in a very useful way, but, yeah. but that kind of conceptual uh, gap had been, had been crossed. I knew that you could play quite advanced, interesting games with your military figures and models. And um, and so after that, then I tried to design my own games, you know, just knowing knowing nothing about wargaming except that it it possibly existed. <laughs> <laughs> so so you know, cr cr very very crude attempts, but I was kind of on on the pathway. Now later on, uh, I, I you know I became quite uh, close friends with this lad, and his dad actually showed us how you actually play real war games with yeah. you know wide variety of figures wide variety of uh of periods and and all this kind of thing um so that's what that was my initial uh entrance into the hobby and so my first armies the ones um henry Hyde talks about imprinting doesn't he yes. um my, i imprinted actually on six millimeter um because those were the things i've first been exposed to and, and got that wow factor yeah. um so my first armies were 
Heroics and Roths, uh, 6mm uh, World War II armies for the Eastern Front, uh, Soviet and German. And then um, I joined the local club. I was still quite young, young then. I couldn't have been more than 9 or 10. Um, and I expanded from that into 15mm Napoleonics because that was the one that the, the majority of the adults played. Yeah. Um, so I had a had a small army of uh, British and French from Warrior Miniatures, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then, when I reached about eleven or twelve, this is when Games Workshop started becoming really big news, and all the younger members of the uh, of the club started to get into, you know, Space Marines and Orcs and and stuff. I know this is a bit after they'd they'd come on the market but this is when it was gathering a lot of pace yeah. and and all of a sudden it wasn't just uh lads down the club it was lads in my street who were getting space marines for christmas um and so i slightly moved um to to playing those games um i had a small war on 40k force um i got the space orcs box um the first one they released of that painted that oh, up man. yeah to fight up to fight friends space marines it's probably um, worth a lot of money now. That is. <laughs> if if only I I still had them. Yeah. Um, I, I've moved around a lot in life, so I, I've ended up ditching an incredible amount of stuff. It seems in retrospect, <laughs> um, unfortunately. But yes, so so those were my kind of staples for a while. But then what I really got into were um, what did you call them? Hybrid games. So Space Hulk, Hero Quest, Advanced Hero Quest, um, because. They actually worked better as games, generally speaking, uh, than 40k, um, especially for you know 12, 13, 14 year olds. Yeah. Um, there's a, especially with Rogue Trader, there's a lot of filling in the gaps you need to do, and you need you need to understand gaming. I think whereas anyone can figure out Space Hulk, yes. you know, pretty quickly and get a very very good game out of it. So in the end, I remember we did a lot of um, conversions from 40k to Space Hulk. So how you use Imperial Guard. In, in Space Hulk, how you use orcs in Space Hulk and stuff, just because that was a kind of more solid uh, solid set of rules, we thought, for you know for what we wanted to do. Um, so, I, you know, there's quite a wide variety of gaming in there. I did a lot of board gaming as well. Um, I think the first one was a, a World War II game called Onslaught, which was the uh, campaign in Western Europe, 1944 to 45, invade Germany and, uh, and and win the game. But the one that had the most influence was a game called Ambush. Now, Ambush is a squad level solo World War II game, um, and it came out with uh, a lot of expansions. Uh, at heart, it's almost like um, you know a paragraph based choose your own adventure type mm-hmm. game, but yeah. but kind of merged with a Hex and Hex and Chit um, war game, and that worked really well. Uh, I, I played that game to absolute death, and that uh, more than anything, I think, sort of really moved me from from being a primarily face to face gamer um, to a primarily solo gamer. Right, interesting. So uh, the influence of that, but I, I do remember that board game. We used to have a shop in the middle of. Stoke on Trent called Fantasy World. That um, this was pre Games Workshop coming into the city, uh, but they had all these expensive Avalon Hill games and um, SPI and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I've, I've got a vague recollection of seeing that. I, I picked up Advanced Squad Leader as a first exposure into it, which probably, in hindsight, wasn't the best one to get <laughs> because it blew my brain somewhat. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a vague recollection of that. Yeah, I think it's uh, quite been quite influential in a, in a certain number of people for, for its game design. Uh, yes. just how, how clever it was it must have taken the guy I think the guy was called John Butterfield I, I may have got that wrong I, ho- I hope not but it took a, a lot of effort to get it right but he, he did actually produce a, a workable a really workable solo system um, where right. you were playing against the engine and and it was difficult you could right. you could fail okay interesting this, Peter Pigger actually um, I don't know if you're familiar with any of the rules that Peter Pigger have uh, re, uh, produce, but uh, they've got their own um, company-level World War II game based on a grid uh, called uh, PBI, and they're currently developing a so well. It can be played solo. It's meant to be two players playing against an engine, but it can be one player playing against the engines. A, a sort of uh, a solo game in the making, if you like, uh, which sounds a very similar concept in that. Uh, you you can lose the game uh, yeah. to uh, to this AI uh, system that they're they're building into. So it sounds really interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think now you know the the position is very different, especially amongst uh, you know for miniature gamers, because there are companies uh, that have blazed this route. So um, to our war games um, yeah. have, have always focused very very heavily on on playing solo or at least enabling you to play solo within the rules and mm. and do it at a more meaningful level than turn the board around and play both sides yeah um, I'm not saying there's not a place for that because there absolutely is but mm. to, to take it that one stage further and you know they've been doing that for i guess the best part of two two decades now but I, i've definitely noticed it more um this side of 2000 than the other side of 2000. Right, interesting. So did that, did that board gaming then take you away from the Games Workshop line of figures and games? Uh, no, uh, while I was still playing, uh, playing uh, face-to-face, I was, I was still, uh, still playing those games. Um, but it kind of it widened the possibilities for me rather than thinking of gaming as something that you did um, down the club or with your mates um, head to head or in a big gang of you that as well as doing that you could also do this kind of solo gaming and not only was it not inferior as an experience in some ways it could be it could be better as an experience you could you could do things in solo games which you can't really do in face-to-face games and that was uh that was quite a conceptual breakthrough i guess yeah that's interesting isn't it because I may have talked about this before, but gaming, face-to-face gaming is very much a social contract where, I mean, you don't have to have this, but ideally uh, both players come to the table with the intention of the other person enjoying the, the experience in the game. Um, okay, there's, if you're in competitive gaming, then uh, this win-at-all-costs attitude and uh, building lists, to using points values lists that are killer lists and will wipe the floor with everybody else that's that's not my thing at all but i do think that in face-to-face gaming there has to be that social contract where you both agree to play fairly play nicely uh you know if there's a mistake then i'll oh, go and take it back and have another go or whatever but in solo gaming um it, it's no holds barred isn't it? it it is and 
you can make games of things which you wouldn't be able to do otherwise or yes. or wouldn't be able to um wouldn't be, subjects you wouldn't be able to tackle or you wouldn't be able to do the scope of the game i i, I noticed that the people who've done say 18th century sieges and written them up have yeah. tended to do that solo yes <laughs> you know for for, for very obvious reasons yeah. but i think but i think there's um it's also there's also wider applications than that so for instance, uh, in World War II gaming, um, you know, very popular, very common, very common as head-to-head games. But you are going to come up against who can see what. Yeah. And in solo games, you can make that a virtue because you can tie that into concepts of surprise. You can generate um, additional enemy forces to the left, to the right um, in your in your rear, and that's okay. It's extremely difficult to do that well in um, in a face-to-face game. And we'll, we'll come on to your World War II gaming shortly because you use a set of rules that might raise a few eyebrows, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which uh, books the, the sort of current trend of, of gaming, doesn't it? Uh, in, as in the War Games Research Group set. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, we, we'll come on to that shortly. Um, so where, where did you go then from this, this board game ambush which opened your eyes to the solo gaming okay so um I, I continued with that for for a couple of years and then i spent a, a few years not out of the hobby but definitely out of the the miniatures miniatures hobby um because i started uh university moving around uh jobs what have you and it just it was quite a it was quite a mobile lifestyle i had and i just could not um put together a figure gaming setup i know that innovators now have found ways to do it but i didn't i didn't know how to do it then i didn't i didn't particularly give it a lot of thought i just thought right no i i can't really do this i'll concentrate on other things so um i continued to play uh, games like ambush i tried some others in the same vein um b17 patterns best um i also played a lot of the fighting wings um world war ii uh air, air war game uh, okay. system um they've done a few now but at the time i had a game called over the reich which was uh, focusing on the 43 to 45 period and then acting spitfire which concentrated on the 39 to 42 period um now they were very complicated um air combat rules um they're almost almost like advanced squad leader levels uh-huh. of complexity yeah. uh, to, to to track you in but um I would generally play them solo because you can do a fairly acceptable bomber intercept mission solo, you know, without, without worrying too much about how the enemies are going to react. It's more of a um, set up your attack and chuck your dice kind of game. Yes. Um, so, so I did that. Um, got into computer games, um, say Steel Panthers, because I thought that rep, uh, replicated the miniatures experience quite well, but didn't need an opponent and didn't need any table space or anything like that. Classic um, back in the day, wasn't it, Steel Panthers? Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's um, you know, very decent game. Yeah. Can't can't fault it really. Um, I know it's been uh, supplanted by you know better games now, but it it, it did its job uh, very well. And this continued for about um, maybe ten years, um, and then I had a I can't quite call it a near death experience, but that that's the closest thing I can. I can use to de- to describe to describe what happened, right. and then and then I had a chance to think of if I get out of this, 
what would I like to do? Okay. And and one of those things was actually I really fancy getting back into uh back into miniature gaming. So at this point, every, all the all the miniatures, even all the hybrid game stuff, nearly all the hybrid game stuff was long gone, uh, sold, given away by my mum, uh, whatever. And so I was kind of rebuilding it from scratch. Yeah. Uh, this would have been 2007, he says. Um, and so obviously when I'd stopped doing miniature wargaming, then like the internet hadn't been a thing really for most people or anything like that. Um, I would, I'd sort of, I'd bought some of the magazines from, from time to time occasionally. So I wasn't totally ignorant of what had happened in the, in the hobby, you know, that say darkest Africa had come in 28 millimeter and had gone away again, things like that. Pirates. Uh, pirates yes. Yeah. Uh, all, all manner of things. Uh, the, the war games foundry model of gaming, if you like. Yes. And, um, and then I was faced with how, how do I, um, how do I get back into the hobby? You know, what, what first step should I take? And funny enough, six millimeter wasn't my first choice. I thought I would do 20 millimeter. Yeah. Um, and I tried, I never really got on with it. Um, I think I was probably in retrospect a bit harsh on the figures, but, um, I did find them difficult to paint and make the paint stay on. Um, even more than that, the uh, the last set of club rules I'd used had been um, the Bruce Quarry rules. Not ones I would have picked myself, but that's the one that th- those are the ones that my club uh, picked. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of naturally gravitated back towards using using them, possibly because that was the only set of rules I still had lying around. Anyway, so I I tried it a couple of games of them. You know, bought some plastic figures, based them up, went through the rules, went through the motions, and I was like how did I ever put myself through this? This can't, this, this can't be right. And, and, I, and I have to think as like this kind of older and experienced, more experienced gamer, I, I have to think that the older members of my club had probably in the background made substantial changes to make right. it a more workable game. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, you know, I, I, was, I was pretty young at the time, didn't know. Anyway, so at that point, I was like, right, I need to reevaluate, you know, where I'm going with this and what I want to do. And that's when I thought six millimeter. Um, I might have seen an advert online for Bacchus, um, and then thought, yeah, actually, this is this is worth pursuing. At the time, Peter had um, uh, quite a long. Uh, he calls it a rant, so so I shall follow him um, in in why six millimeter could be the scale for you, yes. um, and not tw- and not twenty eight millimeter, and you know, sort of being being walked through his logic of well it's all the right tools for the job but if your intention is to play quite big battles on a relatively normal budget on a relatively normal table size um then you are you are going to end up doing something like this probably yes um so i bought a few discovered that actually I really enjoyed painting six, uh, six millimeter, not to, not to any great, great standard, I'm afraid, but, um, but I actually enjoyed the process. Um, and if you enjoy the process of painting, then, then the battle's half won, I think, in terms of producing armies. Um, so it start, so it kind of started from there. Um, and at the same time as I was reevaluating what I wanted from the models I played these games with, uh, because of my, my recent 
bad experience with uh, with reviving the quarry rules. I was also interested in some new concepts for uh, how you might how you might refight Napoleonic battles in a reasonable time um, without too many calculations um, in a way that worked. And because um, because Bacchus were actually selling these Polymos Napoleonic rules, which promised to do exactly that, then I bought the rules and and, and started from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's a really interesting point, actually, because, um, and again, this is I've talked about this before, but having the right tools for the job, it, it, people talk about don't use a hammer to knock in, screw in a screw or whatever, but the the polymos rules when they first came out were quite revolutionary, I think, in the way that um, they approached all the usual phases of gaming, whether it was the movement, the melee, the missiles, the morale. Um, and I know that there's, I don't know how many sets there are, there must be 10 sets out there now, but each, it seems as though each set has evolved and developed uh, to the point where I think, uh, is it Rustiger um, by Glenn Pierce? It oh, yeah, is, yeah. is a set that seems to have streamlined very much a lot of those concepts down to what is a very fast play playable game. Well, um, I hope that one day you'll uh, interview Glenn or Glenn will agree to an interview. Um, yes, I've reached out yeah. to him and that's yeah. on the cards. Yeah, because um, he was, um, he was, if I recall correctly, a play tester for Polymos Napoleonics. And for a long time, uh, him and his group used Polymos Napoleonics as their real set of choice. Yes. Um, but for what he wanted to do, um, he he gradually, gradually sort of uh, house rules replaced, tweaked, uh, and what have you. And then at a certain point, I think the the, the link back to Polymus Napoleonics was not not non-existent, but fairly tenuous yeah. um, because he'd replaced he'd replaced the axe head, he'd replaced the axe haft. He'd done it a few times. Was it the same axe? Probably not really. And I think that's what led him to uh, to do his own rules. And the reason his rules uh, work particularly well from the from the player's point of view is because him and his group were doing an awful lot of playing of them. And they they knew the points of friction within the Polymos rules, the bits that I, I won't say don't work because that's that's not really fair exactly. But 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 the bits that that slow down the game or the bits where you have to have a look a real close look at the situation and work out this happens then this happens then this happens then this happens yeah. and so um when he came to write his rules I, I think um then he he just decided no actually do we really need this phase at all no no we can the, the game will pay pretty much the same without it and that's why his his rules um are probably the most uh, streamlined within the uh within the polymos family yeah. um Overall, the the thing that struck me about the uh, about the polymorphs rules at the time were they were innovative, but they weren't, I guess, quite as innovative as occasionally they were made out to be, both by uh, supporters and detractors. Yeah, I think um, to go way back into into Henry High type territory, there's actually a Charlie Wessencraft set of rules in practical in uh, practical wargaming. Uh, I think I think the book is which um, actually adopt many of the same kind of design assumptions yeah and they look actually a pretty workable set of rules um paddy griffith came up to something uh some kind of similar conclusions in his army level game in 
in his uh, Napoleonic Wargaming for fun. Yeah. Um, that said, I think that's much more of a uh, an ideas book than a genuine rule sets because if you try to play them, you will you will rapidly hit some some quite serious snags. Right. I don't. He he, he proposes each battalion is based is on a one centimeter base. Okay. Now, if you've ever tried messing about with with uh, like three six millimeter figures on a one centimeter oh. one centimeter base, you'll know that he probably didn't quite do that he might have used counters or something yeah um and if you're really going to do leipzig are you really going to have 400 units per side each of one centimeter base i, I don't really think so no but, i can't vision that myself no. <laughs> but but he had some very useful ideas about how you might approach this type this type of game yes um i think the the, the big influences on polymers and I, i'm kind of guessing because i didn't write them but the the one the the way it looks like to me is that there's this maybe something of PK in there, yeah. but lots of lots of DBA. Yeah. That that essence of you roll a dice, that's how many times you get to go in your turn. Yeah. Now now Polymos uh tempo system is a is a lot more advanced than that. It allows you to play around with a lot more, it allows you to incorporate different command structures and stuff, um, using that same mechanic. But it is kind of the same mechanic with um with a, a bidding process on top um at the same time um i think uh sam mustafa in his grand Armée, yeah he was he was trying to solve some of the same problems about how do you actually play these big napoleonic battles in a reasonable amount of time on a reasonably sized table yeah um and the solutions he came to were sometimes quite different, sometimes reasonably similar. But again, I think it was part of a kind of wider trend of how, if you have three hours and a six by four foot table, how do you produce a big Napoleonic battle, which looks good, is playable and is going to give you a, 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 a plausible result. Yeah. And so, although it was it's in, in in certain ways then i think it was also part of a trend um i remember when uh neil of maples and miniatures first first reviewed these and i think it's way back um i can't remember i can't remember the exact episode number but i think it's in the 30s right. and he was saying that he thought uh the big big battle uh polymus napoleonic set marcel uh, de Lempo, was yeah. the innovative one but I kind of disagreed at the time, and I, I disagree still. I think the really, um, the really innovative one, or at least the one that took the boldest decisions, was uh, the lower lower level scale uh, rule set, General de Division. Yeah. Because in Napoleonics, when you propose that a single base represents a battalion, more or less, or a regiment, or a group of two or three squadrons, and you don't do formation changes, you don't do the column line square, then Actually, that's a bold call for Napoleonic gaming. That's yes. that's the big departure. Whereas actually having a kind of brigade base, which acts as a brigade and um, does brigade stuff, I don't think I, I, there there are other rules I could point to which took a similarish view. Yes. Yeah, people um, certainly. Uh, I think in the general division, the base size is the is the that's traditional sixty by thirty, isn't it? Uh, whereas the the larger scale game, you're on the sixty by sixty, which is 
very similar to the likes of Volume Bayonet to Grand Armee. Um, and that's that's um, sort of helicopter view that you get of the battlefield and the, the idea that you are the army commander or corps commander and you're not worried about the individual formations of the troops because that's down to the, the colonels and the brigadiers actually in the midst of the fighting. For general division to represent a battalion as one stand, um, there's that pushback, isn't there, against from those gamers that want to represent squares and want to, want to represent uh, columns and the various mixed order or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. That's that's certainly a bold was certainly a bold move back in the day. Yeah, but very much so. And and I think this comes from the um, the at the time bold decision in uh, the Polymos English Civil War rules, which I think were one of the first, uh, yes. or possibly even the first, um, to have a battalion of foot on a single base. So you couldn't muck about with you know, the pacman here and, and, the sh- and the shot there. Um, it, was, it was one battalion, it was one base. You based your pike and shot together and and you treat them as one tactical unit. So it's uh, that was similarly bold, um, I believe, at, at the time. At the time it was uh, written, and this is this is the almost the equivalent, if you like, for Napoleonics um, to say actually the commander of the battalion or the battalion or regimental commander in Napoleonic terms, we are going to let the dice decide whether they did their job well or if they didn't do it so well, rather than the player um, controlling that. Um, themselves, and th- th- these are bold steps, I think, um, which haven't haven't necessarily been widely followed. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think that's a really interesting point in that what are we trying to represent on the table? And you, as the player or the general, what what control should you have over your army? So, if you're a general sat in the middle of your lines. Um, you're going to trust your wing commanders to do whatever is, is most appropriate at that time. You might send out the orders from uh, that central position, but you're not going to have that that granular impact on what's going on out on the flanks. So I, I think that's a really interesting concept where it removes that level of control from the player. And I, I think that might be a bit unnerving for some people who are not used to that type of rules. Well, um, especially in Napoleonics, which I have more experience of uh, over the course of my gaming career than uh, than English Civil War, then when I was when I was little, then that was the crux of Napoleonics. That was it was the column line square mini game determines the victor of the battle. Yeah, um, and I think a lot of the historiography of Waterloo um, at the time kind of encouraged that type of view. Yes. Um, I think a lot of people have moved away from that uh, quite uh, quite deterministic uh, view at the time, especially once you read the accounts of what actually happened to Waterloo. And then you find that it's very hard to sustain the idea that a line will always be a column if it's, if it's unshaken and a square can never drive off things with firepower, uh, those kind of things. Um, I, I don't think the, the historical historiography if you read enough really supports those kind of ideas but they were the prevalent ones in um in that kind of level of wargaming for years and years and years yes. now the, um someone who does rules very differently uh david 
uh, Brown. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, I think he's he's put the strongest counter case that I've seen, which is that actually upon occasions, Wellington did go and order um, a certain battalion of foot into square or the Prince of Orange specifically orders a certain number of battalions into line and orders them to advance with with disastrous consequences. Mm. And if you um, if you have a one battalion as one base, then um, the skeptic might well ask, well, how do you replicate that? Um, the problem is, though, if you are um, if you're allowed to move into into formations, then you literally have to do that. You have to make that decision, even if the decision is no change, for yeah. every single unit in your army every turn. Yes. So you can never hit on a perfect solution. You, you, you're trying to find the least imperfect solution. Yeah. And and Polymos effectively propo- pro- uh, proposes that if if Wellington is directly with this base, then we'll give the unit um, a plus one modifier, a plus two modifier, whatever it is, to represent the the advantage that having the boss there will be more likely to put them in the correct formation as well as encourage the troops so we will just um we will just sublimate that into the into the combat factors yes. but but for other people if you if you don't move them physically into square your your toys then it can't really have happened yeah yes. yeah i've seen this i have yeah. experienced this over the years absolutely yeah, so so I'm I'm certainly not saying you know um, that that one approach is right and and one approach is wrong, and um, for certain certain levels of games, then I would go the other way. I think if you want to represent the life of a of a Napoleonic brigadier, then then yes, absolutely, you must have um, units which can be broken down into subunits, and you really care about the formation and the um, and the cohesiveness of those formations because that is the actual life of a of a napoleonic brigadier but when you're napoleon or when you're wellington then having to worry about the exact formation of the second the fifth the 45th the 97th foot every single turn of your game forever that feels to me and it won't feel to others but it feels to me less realistic than just giving a plus one on the die if um if Wellington happens to be present with that unit. It's also going to give you a very big headache, isn't it? Let's face it. Well, well, well it does. The, um, there was an old um, uh, Mike Siggins column, uh, of all things, in uh, back in Wargames Illustrated, I think, when he was doing Wargames Notebook. Yeah. And he he was recalling his Napoleonic games, you know, down at the club, which I guess would have been Lawton, Lawton Strike Force or yeah. whatever it was. And he, he was saying that, actually, it was very, very rare in his day for any Napoleonic game to ever be finished because, because the, each player fundamentally had too many things to do yeah. in, terms of, in terms of game administration. You are moving every formation. You are arranging every formation. Depending on your rule sets, you might be moving them down to the, to the individual figure. They're yeah. still part of the unit, but if you physically have to position uh, figures on an individual basis... The amount of time that takes and the amount of mental energy that takes means that you can't really um, be like Wellington gnawing on his chicken at Salamanca waiting mm-hmm. for the moment to commit the reserve. It's, it's, it's physically impossible because of the mechanics of what you're doing as a player. Um, so thank goodness for, for Polymos and uh, Grand Armée and DBA as well 
from, yeah. from freeing me from, from those kind of things. I, I know that some people don't want to be freed and that's absolutely fine. But for me, yeah. that was the that was the big conceptual breakthrough. I think it's that compromise, isn't it, that um, rules writers have to make and they have to make that decision as to what it is they're, they're replicating. So if you want to fight the big games like Salamanca or Austerlitz, then you have to make the compromise somewhere to allow that to be played because I've certainly over the years been involved in games where um, we, we've just given up halfway through because it is just too much like hard work um, to to try and get a game finished and to understand um, the the rules that we're using. Even the likes of in the Grand Manor, which is a, a classic old set of rules, but goodness me, when you're talking about individual figure removal um, and the, the factors that are involved in a, in a rule set like Grand Manor. There's no, there's no real command and control rules uh, within that set. Um, but even so, it's such hard work and gaming's supposed to be fun, isn't it? And we're supposed to be enjoying ourselves and um, it needs to scratch an itch uh, of what it is you want to be. So if you want to be Napoleon, if you want to be Ney or, or whoever, then the game needs to be pitched at that level. Or you need to find the game that's pitched at that level that will suit your eye. And you're right, you know, if, if people like that level of granularity, then Wargaming is a broad church and, and we're, we're all welcome uh, within it. But um, Six Mill, I think, uh, lends itself, doesn't it, towards that grand tactical level game. It, yeah, it, it, it does It does very, very much so. Um, and... It's again. It's it's not. It's not that I want to say that my way of doing it is a better way than it, not everyone else's. Anyone else's because yeah. it, abs- it because it absolutely isn't. But if we if we go back to sort of Peter's Peter's little rant um, or, or on his website about the right tools for the job and and if you go back to those factors of it's not just it's not just the look. Um, it's not just money. It's about space and time and 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 those those crucial things which actually play a great a great amount of uh, sorry a large role in determining the outcome of games so yes i know i want to do waterloo i know on a good day i have five foot by three foot space to do that yeah uh, if i want to succeed i have to have to um choose options in terms of figures and rules which will n- enable me that uh, enable that uh, to happen for me yeah. Now, I could I could do it with uh, Black Powder. Black Powder has formations. Um, it's quite a it's quite a fast play game. If I had uh, quite small units, um, small small physical units, as in I use the same number of figures that the Perrys do, but I had them in six millimeter rather than uh, twenty eight millimeter, millimeter yeah. I could probably do that on a five foot five foot uh, by three foot table. But um, I think that they need more time to physically play a game of uh, a game of black powder that big because yeah. you have to move all the, each individual unit you have to put them into different formations you need to declare what it is that you are doing and then roll your dice and seeing if you can do even more stuff or no stuff at all um yeah. now um that's absolutely not criticism of black powder in any way because i i understand what they want to do it's how do we get a, a game that's finishing that we can finish in maybe four or five hours on a 12 foot by six uh, table with my th- 2020 millimeter, millimeter figures aside and black powder looks as a good a solution as any 
to that particular set of circumstances. Yes. But it doesn't really work for my set of circumstances, which is I'm certainly not going to play uh, for more than four hours in a go, and I need to do it in a five by three space. Yeah. Yeah, and it, that comes back to the right tool for the job and that granularity, doesn't it? That um, Polymos and those grand tactical games lift you away from. Um, it's that's not your concern as it as the commander of an army in Polymos or Grand Armée or um, Might and Reason as another set yeah. or any of the Polymos sets. That's not your concern, is it? Your concern is making sure that the cavalry are over on the right flank. How what formation they're in and what, at what point they decide to charge or whatever is is beyond your control, and uh, you, you've just got to put faith in, into that wing commander, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so, w- at what point did you start the blog, then, John? Because you, you you've had this epiphany where you'd found the scale of figures that you wanted to represent these battles with. You found the rule set, or the rule sets, sorry, um, or the, the 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 kind of rule sets you wanted to represent these games. At what point did you move into blogging? Okay, so. Initially, the, the plan had been to concentrate on the Peninsula War, and um, I had quite a quite a set plan of how I was going to achieve this. It was basically to progress through all the individual battles, which I would refight maybe once or twice each one, um, and in the process of doing that, I would collect large enough forces uh, for the British, the Portuguese, French, Spanish, um, to be able to then refight the whole thing as a campaign. Um, and um, unusually in gaming, that's pretty much exactly what happened. Um, so I, I worked through the um, the battles of the Peninsula War fairly um, fairly sy- systematically. Yeah. Um, at that point, I, f- I first started doing things online, as in contributing. Um, I started putting the scenarios up on the Yahoo group uh, for Polymos, as it was at the time. Yeah. Um, I got. Uh, not quite to the end of that process. Um, I, I got to probably about 18.11, I think. 18.11 or 18.12. Um, and then I decided, right, I've got enough to, re- to refight the whole thing. And at that point, um, that's when I started the blog, uh, my first blog, which was yeah. 2010, I think. Um, and then that went for a few months um, as I tried to make a, a campaign work with the uh, Polymos campaign rules because that, you know that they they release some um, that never really worked. Um, so as I mentioned, you know earlier on in the show, then um, because the campaign didn't work, I got rid of the blog. Yeah. I gave it another six months and I tried again. Um, something similar happened, so I deleted again. Um, so that's that's how the blog started happening. Um, then in 2012, that's when uh, the current blog uh heretical gaming that's when that uh started and i and i kind of stuck to that um at the beginning i just i won't say any old rubbish it wasn't quite like that but i was determined that even if i didn't have anything particularly good to say i would say it i wasn't inflicting this on anyone else at the time because i think it was still private um but just to get myself into the habit of of writing and then and, and then being confident enough to actually hit um submit at the end yeah. Um, so I did a couple of reviews of uh, a couple of 
the Meeples and Miniature shows, uh, a couple of magazines, I think, a um, couple of thoughts about bits and pieces of wargaming, and then got to start writing uh, battle reports. And then once I got in the flow of that, then I knew it was kind of secure. I would th- This is the one I would keep, and this is the one I, I would develop further. And I don't know if we mentioned this on air or off air, actually, but the certainly the battle reports that you do john are pretty involved aren't they those they're not two or three pictures with a brief description of the game there's dozens of pictures for some of these battle reports um and they're really in depth so that the reader can follow um from the original from the initial terrain setup and the lay of the land right through to conclusion it must be quite a lot of hard work um it's, it can sometimes be a bit of hard work, especially if there's a, a lot of photographs um, that need that all need uh, cutting, uh, resizing. Um, sometimes they need a filter or two on them or, or whatever it might be. But once you're kind of in the flow and you understand how the tools work, then it gets to be you know, a, relatively, uh, a relatively swift process. Um, in fact, actually doing the doing the, like the kind of setup paragraphs, the scenario, the forces, the um, translation from whichever scenario I was using to the actual rules I'm using, um, any notes on changes I've made before the game, that can, that can take um, take an, an equal amount of time. The yeah. captions, the caption writing actually comes pretty quickly, really. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't normally wait too long uh, before, before I write them, even though it might be a bit longer until I actually publish it for whatever reason. But I'll try and write the captions quite quickly. And as long as I set some a concentrated, I don't know, 20 minutes half an hour to do that then normally i can bang that out in one go it's it's pretty quick um and then i might take another uh normally it's quite swift maybe 10 15 minutes to do the game notes if i'm doing something really involved then maybe that might be 45 minutes to an hour um so um i don't think uh i don't think there's been many that have taken more than say an hour and a half or two hours to do. Um, the, prob- the problem is it needs to be concentrated time. The only ones that take take longer are the are the really in-depth um, playthroughs where um, I'm literally, every time I throw a dice, I have to take a picture. Right. That, makes, that makes the game slow. Um, yeah. But I also have to record the result of that dice and then what modifiers I apply to it. So they do take a long time, which is why there's only a couple on there, I think, of, of really in-depth um, play-by-play uh, recounts. Yes. Yeah, the uh, what strikes me as well is um, because you've run more than a couple of campaigns, I think that you've uh, detailed on your blog. And am I right in thinking you've just started a new one, a Gaelic War campaign? Yeah, um, I've I've been trying to get the this uh, Gaelic War uh, campaign, yeah. the, the the refight of the of Caesar's conquest of Gaul and his um, his first invasion of Britain. I've been trying to get this off the off the ground for a few years now. Um, but it, it took me a while to track down a board game that I could use as a campaign engine, uh, get all the figures so I was happy with them. Um, and then uh, this one has taken a, a long time to decide which ancient rules to use. Um, I, I've ummed and about this quite a lot. But yes, um, so I've just kicked off another one. Though I, I say I just kicked it off. This one has also had its, um, its couple of false starts where I played through a couple of turns, identified something I'm not very happy with, um, and then decided, no, I need to stop it now rather than play 30 games where I'm not happy with something uh, in the background. So it's far better to collapse it early and say, no, reshow, no, reshow. And then I I kind of know 
when it's ready. Um, there's a there's a blogger out there um, called Paul Leniston who does Napoleonic games exclusively um, from his uh, from his villa in Spain, and and he does them all as part of campaigns, huge huge campaigns. Um, the the actual games are you know quite quite niche. Um, he uses own rules. He uses you know twenty eight millimeter figures in uh, quite small units. He yeah. uh, playing against his wife, but. Um, his advice on how you actually make a campaign run, I've, I've found absolutely invaluable. Um, especially two, two bits of advice have really stood out. Firstly, you've got to make the campaign at the level of detail you want it to be. Now, that might be more detail. It's not always about simplifying because if you're, if you're making it too simple, you think in your head it's too simple, then you don't enjoy it the way it needs to be enjoyed for you to stick at it. So you have to find your right level of detail, even if that means a lot of work, because if you want to count every last musket and every last dollar, then you need to count every last musket and every last dollar, because that's what makes it fun for you. Um, But secondly, you have to give so much thought um, about how you translate campaign action to game action back to campaign action, Mm -hmm. because this is where this is where campaigns uh, fall down. You can't accurately translate what you're doing on the campaign map onto the battlefield or something happens in the battlefield and you don't know how to reflect that back on the back on the campaign and i always think i've solved this problem and i always find out i haven't quite there's some <laughs> there's some aspect which i haven't thought of about how yeah. that how that works how that works so if you've played any any board games at all then you'll you'll know uh, quite often to resolve a battle i don't know in somerset king charles will move some troops in there cromwell will move some troops in there they'll have some combat factors um, the roll of dice and the outcome is the loser loses three units or has five step changes and retreats two spaces, you know, something like that. Yes. You need to know exactly what constitutes a step loss from your, ba- from your battle. Right. Is that, is that a unit which is captured? Is that unit which is entirely eliminated? Is any unit that comes off the board, is, is, is that, is that counted as lost for these purposes or do you count them in different ratios? Are you going to do experience? Are, are your units going to get better or, or are they not? Are you going to do something behind the scenes, which is different from what the the uh, the campaign rules, especially if you're taking them from a board game, that they imply? Um, so if you, in some games, for instance, um, in the Peninsula War refat rules I used, they had um, raw trained and veteran for uh, troop qualities which is fine because that's easily mappable onto almost any set of uh, napoleonic tactical rules but what they also said was that portuguese for some reason only go go from raw to veteran they, they have no kind of intermediate state right and it's like i i really don't see why they did that and i totally don't agree with that therefore i need to work out how i'm going to replicate these middle ground portuguese troops so it might sound a small thing but there'll be quite a few small things like that and you need to tie them all together because yeah. if you don't tie them all together, then you get to an uh, phase and right. <laughs> that, 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 that's when campaigns get, get abandoned. So, yes. so, so those two uh, bits of advice from Paul have, have really stu- um, stood me in good stead for, um, for, for actually you know, getting past those initial, initial troubles and then refighting full campaigns. Right. And the, the point that I was making there about the blog is... Uh, with these campaigns is the wide breadth of history that you gain 
you haven't just got a couple of periods, have you? You've got quite a long list of, of periods that you will gain. Um, and you've got the figures for, I know that I think you use some uh, War of 1812 figures and for the AWI games, don't you? Or you just transpose that into the War of 1812. But um, from Ancients all the way through to World War II, um, I know are you doing some something beyond World War Two as well, some modern yeah. fifteen mil. Yeah, just just started some uh, so, some fifteen millimeter um, modern Cold War yes. modern type stuff. Yes. Yes. So you you really cover a lot a large period. What is that? Just because you've got a wide interest in history from ancient times, or is it just for the variety, or or What's led you down that route rather than sort of concentrating on Napoleonics, for instance? Okay, well, I guess there's 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 two bits to my thinking here. One one comes from the history side, and one comes from the wargaming side. The, the history side is well, it, it's all just interesting. I um, I understand that there's people out there who find the Napoleonic period interesting, but don't think that the AWI is interesting at all. Yeah. I, I find that hard hard to understand. I, I don't condemn it in any way, but but I don't. I don't see. Uh, for, for me, I don't see how you'd begin to think that the the all all the conflicts, generally speaking, unless they're pretty much one-sided walkovers, they all have their points of interest. You know, the um, the different tactics, the um, organisation of the troops, the uniforms, the the courage, uh, or on some rare occasions, cowardice. It, it's all fascinating. Um, it's. Uh, I really love reading Napoleonic history, but I really love reading history of the Normans say so um so it's all it, it's all interesting to me and I don't think that there's one just one period which which is so much more interesting than, than the rest that that kind of dominates my thoughts that's that's the history side but for the gaming side um this actually comes from um partly comes from Neil Shuck and partly comes from Don Featherston um in one of his books uh Don Featherston wrote that it was with no degree, small degree of satisfaction that I look around the shelves of my wargaming room and realise that I can uh, play conflicts from almost every period of human history. Now, yeah, I absolutely see what he means. Some some days what you're interested in is, you know, pike and shot warfare. Some days it's how Roman legions fought um, fought the Gauls. Some some days it's, you know, what's it. Um, What's it like to fight the air co- uh, air combat of uh, Israel and Palestine in, say, the Six Days War, or, or something like that? So, you know, I, I share his fascination and the desire to have enough troops to be able to do that convincingly. As you uh, alluded to, I'm not particularly precious about troops. I'm I'm more than happy to uh, to reroll War of eighteen twelve troops into the uh, French and Indian War or something. But I don't think I'd quite want Polish lancers representing medieval knights. No. <laughs> so, 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 somewhere. Yeah. So, 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 I've, I've got my kind of personal limits. They will be different from from uh, everyone else's. But I'm not going to seriously try and collect uh, specific troops for every conflict I'm interested in, um, because you know I don't have the time, the energy, or, or the money, or the space to do to do those things. But if I've got some Roman legions who can do good service from, I don't know. Uh, can I to Chalant, then then I, I can live with that. Yes. And and that means that more or less I can cover with or not too much squinting almost every period that I would want to do. Yeah. 
That, and I think the, uh, there's two things that come in there. One is, as the solo war gamer, you've only got to please yourself. And secondly, uh, as a six mil war gamer, um, the economics of it mean that you can have that widespread of periods, uh, excepting you're not going to do it every single period under the sun, but you, you can have that wide variety of collections. Whereas if you're collecting 28 mil Napoleonics, that is a rubbish hole that you probably will never emerge from because uh, you'll sink that much time and effort and money into get, buying them and painting them that there's probably no more time to, uh, uh, to game or, or to look at any other period. Um, one thing that just struck me actually was, is there any period that you won't game? Period? Uh... No, I can't. I mean, I can't. I can't think of one offhand. Uh, th there's nothing I've ever said to myself. I would never do the Spanish Civil War or something. That that, yeah. that, that doesn't exist. Now, um, like there are certain elements of almost any war that I'm probably not going to put to the put to the uh, gaming table. There's. Um, I know that uh, Paddy Griffith, a long time ago, proposed black war games to 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 remind us occasionally of what an actual chevauchee actually involved. Um, and I see the force of that, but I'm not seriously going to do that for my own entertainment in my in my hobby time. Um, <laughs> so, um, so no, it's it's not it's not a thing that, that that's come up. I, um, the the only the only choices are are practical ones. So, if I if I want to go into 16th century Far Eastern Japanese and Korean warfare, then that means I need to research and paint and find rules and uh, buy and make terrain for those armies. So it's more a matter of where is that in the queue rather than I would never do it. Right. And, and the, con the converse question then to that is um, what is tempting you at the moment? Other than you've talked about the 15 mil um, and, you know, I've got thousands of 15 mil figures, mainly uh, from Peter Pig, but uh, we are a six mil podcast. So just to keep on point, uh, what is there anything that's tempting you uh, as a new range, new period, new set of rules over and above what you've already got? Okay, so the 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 one on the horizon, I think, is uh, six millimeter pony wars. Uh, since uh, Peter's promised to do that, um, I really loved playing pony wars uh, back at the club, and it would it would work solo absolutely fine with almost zero modification. Yes. So. Um, so I am. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing that when 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 those come out. Um, after that, I don't think there's anything that's that's in. I you know I I really want to do this. This is this is really really high up on the list. Um, but that's more like uh, because there's there's no big period, but there's quite a lot of like little things, uh, little bits and pieces that I, I'd quite like to do. Um, so. Over the course of time, I will move on to different World War Two periods. Next up, probably the Russians. Um, I will add Napoleonic Poles at some point. I will add maybe uh, Crusaders to medieval six millimeter yeah. um, stuff. So, if um, if someone does some nice lance necks um, in six millimeter and has them for sale in Britain then then they're definitely on the list too so yeah so my uh my interests are all, are, are almost infinite but i'm 
I'm reasonably disciplined about giving myself kind of realistic goals. So I'm not just going to buy everything just because I happen to be interested in everything. It will be if I buy these amount of figures, can I get them painted and you know gamed with them within three four months? And yeah. and so um, the next the next fully discrete project, as opposed to little bits of additions, will probably be be Pony Wars um, with the possibility that I do uh, World War Two Soviets instead. One of them too. When uh, when I spoke to Peter and Pear, um, Peter will say he didn't commit to this, but uh, through the power of editing, I'm sure he committed to saying uh, myself and Pear could be part of the um, uh, the uh, quality control for the Pony Wars. So I'll, I'll get you in on that, mate, and <laughs> the three of us can have early access. Uh, if you're listening, Peter, I'm only joking, obviously. But uh, yeah, I am, I'm I'm looking forward to the Pony Wars too. That will uh, that will be great. Um, so before we go on to talk about solo gaming, because that is almost a subject, well, it is a subject all on its own. We've talked about the Polymos rule sets, which you've been a big champion on. I, I think you're using SPQR, aren't you, for the uh, Gallic campaign? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and I mean, I, you know, I've I've used these rules, uh, you know, plenty of times in the past as well. It's just uh, for, for this one, I I do like DBA um, for uh, for this for this period within the, within ancient warfare, and I like Neil Thomas rules as well. So yes. so they all have their vices and virtues, and um, and it's it's taken me quite a lot, long time to decide that no, no, I was I was going to go with this one, but um, in the end, for a for a campaign game, I, you really want to lose yourself in, in the period. And I just thought that um, SPQR, SPQR's mechanics for um, for the differences in command uh, and command structure between uh, tribal-based armies and legion-based armies that that, that was the that was the uh, the little point which tipped me over into into choosing S, SPQR. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm 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 feeling reasonably happy with happy with that choice. I think um, if I've got one uh, one criticism of, of DBA, um, and perhaps it's an unfair criticism because maybe it's not what these rules were designed to do, but commanding a Roman legion really does feel quite similar to uh, commanding a Magyar raiding army because yeah. because the 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 mechanics of doing that are the same. I know that the um, I know that the troop types are, are different, so you will you will manoeuvre the troops in a different different way. But you are still making you know roll your d6, move move your groups, um, however so composed, and, and, and away you go, um, which I enjoy, and I enjoy playing you know for a, a wide variety of different historical refights using using those rules. But what I'm really looking forward to in in rules that I, I play a lot of in a certain period is to make a kind of better attempt at, at saying no, no. It was more compli- complicated than that. If you are commanding a 14th century medieval army, you you have to do it in battles because that was the way it was done. Mm-hmm. You, if you're commanding Romans, you have to do it in legions because that was the way they, they did it. Yes. You know, at, at this time. And DBA, for all its many uh, many virtues, doesn't really try to reflect that. Um, if you if you're fighting an if you're using an army which has similar composition and similar opponents, then you will manoeuvre it in the same way. Even yeah. if even if their organisational structure behind it absolutely meant that it was a very different experience commanding Scythians compared to Huns compared to Magyars. 
Yes. Yeah. The th- the thing that um, intrigues me about that, I don't own that set of rules, but I've had a flick through it. Um, there's a rather large um, scenario in there for Mons, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Mons Grapius or something similar to that. Oh, right, yes. yes. Uh, and I thought, oh my goodness, that would look magnificent on the table, but you need a hell of a lot of figures and uh, a sizable table, I think, to play it out. But that that is on the bucket list. Um that, well, that, that really, really intrigues me. I've done, I've done it a few times. Uh, 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 kind of one of the smaller scales of it, because I, I use yeah. it as a as a test battle in, in many ways for ancient rules. So I've yeah. I've refought quite a lot. But um, at uh, Joy of Six a few years ago, one of the clubs put on an absolutely spectacular um, refight of Monscrapius, yeah. um, and I, I heartily recommend to anyone interested in scale or the period um to uh to to search that out because that it really was spectacular that they, they, they really got just how big this mountain is supposed to be um yeah, yeah. and you get the real scale of it um so yeah if um if anybody's really interested in, in this battle I, I really recommend that you uh look past uh look at old joy of six photos and see if you can find it because it really was spectacular i'll, I'll do the research on that and, and similarly actually in the english civil war rules the naseby game um, which, if if you play at the full scale, uh, would take a hell of a lot of figures, but again, would look magnificent. It would look a bit like that old Streeter picture, wouldn't it, of the uh, formations at at Naseby? And uh, yeah, that, that's something for the, down the line, I think. Yeah, I've, I could actually do that in terms of um, in terms of the figures. I've I've really? collected enough troops to do to do Naseby. Well, I've collected enough troops to do Marston Boy for that matter. Wow. <laughs> but the um, but but it's it's actually. Um, the difficulty with with that is that at least using the polymorph rules, then you need a, a slightly bigger space than I have available at the moment. Right. Um, you you definitely need to be kind of on the on the plus side of six six foot four foot rather right. than on the minus side like I am. Yeah. Now, um, now I could do it using um, the Twilight of Divine Right rules because oh, yes. because they scaled uh, they scale uh, it. it um, their figures, their figure skills, so I could fit that on my table. But until I get bigger table space available, then, um, then although I could, I could do you know the really big uh, English Civil War battles, then they'll have to wait a, a year or two. Yeah, they look. They look uh, I'm sure it'd look mag- magnificent. So um, I alluded to this earlier on, um, and we've we've touched on the polymos rules, but um, this. I won't say an odd choice, but against the flow of the hobby for World War Two, and I know you've used other rules, but um, you seem to keep coming back to the WRG nineteen twenty-five to fifty. Is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah. So, what is it about that set of rules that grabs you? Just well, as a caveat before you talk, yeah. reading your blog has made me go out and buy them. So um, I'm certainly going to give them a go at some point, but uh, carry on. <laughs> well, um, the, I, I guess the bad news for that one, Sean, is that um, unless you manage to source a, a, a very, very old copy, the the copy you can buy now is actually the second edition right. uh, from the late 80s, I believe. Uh, um, mine, mine is 1973 or four, I think. Oh, oh is it? Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's the, that's the version that's the version I use yeah. um, because because I don't think there's been there's been many substantial improvements on it. Um, to, to, to be frank, I think that um, I think it's it's simple enough um, to to be fun. Once you sometimes the prose is a bit hard to get through, but but actually it's quite a simple system really, and it works pretty well. It works 
better solo than it ever did um, face-to-face, I must say. And if I was playing face-to-face games, then I wouldn't use it. I would probably use um, I Ain't Been Shot Mum. Yeah. Um, uh, I've got a lot of time for uh, Lardy rules, but for me, they've tended to work better as face-to-face games because they answer the question, how do you put lots of friction in a head-to-head game? Mm -hmm. But in solo games, you're looking for something different. And things like I Go, You Go work a lot better because if you're if you're kind of having to mentally move between one side and the other to make the game work, then having an I go you go system actually makes loads and loads of sense um, because you don't have to um, decide in the middle of um, red player's turn would it be useful for blue player to intervene at this point um, because yeah. you get you get into a kind of game theory rabbit hole. As in, if I do this as red player, then blue player will do that. Therefore, I won't yeah. do that. But if I do that, then blue player will do that. So it it actually gets quite brain-breaking quite quite early on. And in yeah. some ways, because of the, the friction that um, the Lardy's put on a lot of their rules, it actually makes it more difficult because it gives you more options and there's more breaks uh, and stuff. So sometimes you're actually just better off for solo play going to a quite strict I-go-you-go because if you're doing a game which which essentially involves turning the table around, play white, play black, then then that makes your life a lot easier. So um, the the thing that was awful back in the day playing playing uh, WRG was it's kind of it's not called quite an opportunity fire mechanic, but but it is one really. So you can move something, and then I can move it back to where I would have fired it would have fired at it in the next turn. Yeah. Which is which is just awful for first to first play. Yes. <laughs> but if you're playing solo, you can do that. Yeah. Because you already know where those points are going to be. Yes. Um, so because the major obstacle, at least uh, at least to my mind, the major obstacle in the rules is is overcome, then the rest of it is pretty solid. So that's what that's why I still use it. Um, I've played uh, Flames of War and uh, enjoyed it to a to a certain extent, but I don't think. Um, in terms of playability or uh, historical accuracy, it's much of an improvement on it. Um, again, uh, I ain't been uh, shot. Was a great game, but like I say, the the command mechanics are are designed to do other things. Um, so I would tend not to go for them. Um, so yeah, so I've I've not really found much reason to to move on. I think um, I think a couple of the uh, things on the armor penetration table are a little bit wonky. Um, so I am kind of moving to a version where, there, where so, there's some minor tweaks to the numbers. But, but no, uh, in terms of the system overall, then yeah, then yeah, works fine. Uh, if it's a good set of rules, it's a good set of rules now as it was 30, 40 years ago, isn't it? So I think it's great that um, you, you, uh, you're a proponent of those rules. I say it's encouraged me to go out and get them. I think I picked them up at the last Joy of Six, actually, last year off the bring and buy. I was quite pleased to get the uh, 1973 stroke 74, can't quite remember, but uh, that early version, because I'm, I'm fairly sure I have got the other version as well somewhere. But uh, and you play that in, in 6mm, don't you? Do you use the Peter, sorry, the uh, Bacchus World War II? Uh, what, the, the models and figures? Yes, um, I've, I've, I do sometimes. I've um, I already had collections of these um, right. before Bacchus released its range, um, but I have bought uh, plenty of their their Brits and Germans and uh, and Americans. So quite often I use them. Um, 
they fit in quite well with the with the GHQ figures at right. kind of games playing range. Yeah. Um, the, they're a bit different from the Heroics and Ross one. They're, they definitely look a bit a bit bigger and chunkier than old Heroics and Ross sculpts. But generally speaking, if I've only got a I don't know a Marda from Heroics and Ross, then yeah, it gets it gets chucked on the table, and yeah. I don't really notice that notice any dramas with that. No, no. Once the bullets are flying, then any, <laughs> anything can be used. <laughs> um, yeah. So the uh, solo gaming then, um, John. Um, we we've touched on it at various points during the chat. Um, is is that your preferred method of gaming? Is it just lack of opponents, or what what led to you to commit so much to solo gaming? Well, I, I do very much enjoy first to first games, and um, uh, it, it's it's mainly been lifestyle, as in it's been hard to uh, commit like two regular opponents because I've been on the move so much. Um, yeah. uh, you know, for their benefit uh, as much as as much as my own. Um, but in addition to that, then I think there are lots of games which are more fun as solo games than um, than they are um, trying to provide social entertainment for, for for two or more players. I think that limits in some in some ways what kind of games that you're probably going to want to play and what kind of battles you're going to want to refight. You you're going to want to to refight things where there's equal amounts for everyone to do and everyone can get involved and everyone has a chance of winning and everyone has a chance of losing and all those things. Whereas in solo play, a lot of those things just do not matter. Um, so you are able to, uh, to, to try out things in a way um, that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. You can extend the games for long periods because you can leave them set up. Um, you, can, you can do branching pathways if, if you want and say, right, I'm going to take two decisions at this point. I'm going to play them out sequentially and then see where I end up just because that's an interesting thing to do for you at the time. Nice. Um, um, it also, um, and I think this very much applies to uh, modern gaming and probably hard sci-fi as well, which is that that invisible battlefield problem is a very, very difficult problem to, to overcome in face-to-face gaming. Yeah. And in, a so- in solo games, you can overcome it in ways which aren't available necessarily to um, to uh, confrontational head-to-head games. You can use the same techniques in cooperative games, obviously, um, but you can't do you you just can't do it, um, or you need to have quite um, mechanically intrusive ways to say you have now walked into an ambush. The eighty-eight has now opened up from there. You either put it on the table and you try and constrain uh, the allied player to going towards it, even though the player knows it's there, or you give the defending player the ability to put it on, to not commit to where it is, or to use uh, systems of cards or blinds or all those kind of things, yeah. which which are all um, obviously doable, but in some ways they're less satisfying than the, the way the soloist can do it, which is to uh, randomly generate, perhaps weighted, uh, random generation of no you've done that so the 88 so have opened up from there or you've done this and now you've been caught in this way or conversely you've done this move and your lucky day you've caught them by surprise and it's actually easier to do to do these things solo um so there are so there are some uh you know important important strengths in their own right of, of playing solo gaming it's also um in terms of multiplayer campaigns they do collapse a lot, it seems. Yeah. Uh, both back back from my days in the club, um, 
and from what I, what I see online now, whereas a solo campaign can uh, be brought to a successful conclusion um, at your own pace. And if you need to take a three-month hiatus, then then you take a three-month hiatus. But it can be very difficult to do that with two players. And if you've got five players, well, yeah, that Some becomes, becomes a very, very challenging indeed. So um, when I refought the Peninsula War, I think I did that over four years, I think. Uh, And it probably constituted 30 battles, just shy of 30 battles, I think. That's that's an impressive effort. (laughs) But, well, it would have been a very impressive effort in a club, but actually all you need as a solo player is persistence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and so it was the same with my English Civil War refights. Again, uh, I think I got to about 15, 16, you know, major, major engagements in that one. Um, put, took a couple of years, but that, that just means that every two months on average, I was playing a, I was playing an English Civil War battle as part of the campaign. And that's very doable. It's very hard to sustain that kind of, um, that kind of interest uh, amongst, a, amongst a diverse group of players and be, who may have to abandon the campaign for real life reasons. Yes. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of advantages if you're going to, uh, if you're interested in in campaigns, and you know, all right, I want to move uh, from my big map uh, board game to my to my table full of miniatures and back again. Then, if you are playing solo, in some ways, it's a it's an awful lot easier than trying to make it as part of a part of a game. So, during these solo games, have you got any um, sort of add-on mechanics or extra mechanics? Because You've got a wide variety of rule sets that you use. I know Polymos features uh, quite heavily there, but you've you've used the Twilight series, haven't you, and uh, the WRG DBA sets and, and one or two others. Are there any sort of bolt-ons that you add in, like a card mechanic, or or is it literally just putting yourself on opposite sides of the table and looking at the situation? Okay, it really, really depends. Um, the... the Simple answer is I use a combination of all of those things, depending. So in, uh, in pre-20th century warfare tactical battles, then because most of the rules I use are uh, Polymos or DBX type rules, then actually that, that die roll um, of how much stuff you can do um, re- really facilitates you just turning the table around. Yeah. Because cause your your choices aren't constrained by um, a theoretical, I could do everything, so what am I going to do? No, it's you can do two things. Which two things are you going to do, given this position? Uh, and because because that's randomly generated, and it's generated every um, every player phase, then actually it works fine, as far as I can tell. Um, even if you don't use systems like that, you're probably going to have to make the same amount of tactical decisions on behalf of the um, of the of the programmed side, because um, these are you know card and uh, paper and pencil type games ultimately you know, with dice. So your AI for your program scenario is only ever going to be so complicated. You are going to have to take tactical decisions yourself against against you if you're playing one side more actively than the other. So actually, um, it really doesn't make a difference. You're going to have that level of engagement anyway, and throwing a dice or um, throwing a dice and then taking some some actions on it, like in Polymos, that gets you to a place where you can do 
X amount of things, which of those things are you going to do? Because you yeah. have to prioritize them. And that works fine. Yeah. For 20th century and onward games, um, I play a lot of Nuts, which has its own mechanics as part of the game, um, which work absolutely fine. Um, they you know, provide a very challenging adventure game type thing. Yeah. Um, I also use a, um, a set of bolt-on rules um, that were printed first in miniature war games i think it's episode, uh, issue 373 okay um the threat generation system right um that, yeah yeah I'll, I'll put it on my blog a few times because um because it's 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 really it's it's really good Bas- the basic idea is um you play one side the other side has uh x amount of units you double that and then you have a card uh, for each unit Yep. You could you could write down on a pair of blank uh, on some blank cards what was on that. I just use like a key and a normal uh, normal set of playing cards. Yep. Um, you you shuffle the cards so half of them mean something and half of them are just blank in the end. And then either on every action you take or every turn you take, uh, depending on how how quickly you want the battle to go and how quickly you think the enemy should generate, uh, you generate a card. Then you chuck a dice, which is basically a posture um, cross reference with a range. So that will tell you that three Panthers have just uh, come into vision at one kilometre um, on your t- 10 o'clock um, from your f- first unit. Yeah. Um, I write a couple of little uh, things around that, which is basically if that um, if that unit is generated out of sight, do you then bring it forward to the first position where it was in sight or do you um, effectively do something else with it do you move it around so you could see it on a different bearing or do you effectively just put it back in the pack um, so it's going to turn up somewhere else at a different, a different point where it could uh, you could see it or worse it can see you um, and that works absolutely brilliantly for kind of World War II uh, platoon and, and, and company games you can, you can really wait um, where uh, troops likely to appear so if the fighting is really dispersed say in the bocage of normandy you can have quite high chances that something is going to appear to your right rear or something yeah if it's a if it's a world war one battle where the where the lines are kind of more definite then effectively you can say well i don't know where they're going to appear but they're going to appear somewhere in my 180 degree arc to my front yeah and you and you just modify the table to achieve that um so it, it scales very well whether you're working as a section or whether you're a company commander or battalion commander or whatever so so yes so um those mechanics work really well for 20th century tactical games on the campaign side um card driven games are particularly popular at the moment um so like in twilight struggle you know you play the card that fidel castro happens now and that means that cuba goes red for instance yeah and in the, in the way those games are played, you've normally got a deck of cards, which you choose to play. When I'm playing these games solo, what I'll do is I'll deal the cards, but um, effectively not turn them over. So if you could play seven cards in a turn, then I only deal out seven cards and you play them alternatively in order. Right. So I, d- I don't know which ones they are um, before they're turned over. So, so neither side can effectively react to each other. But because, the, because each card will normally have option A, do this or option b do this then my role as the player is to decide for that side what's it better at that moment to play a or b and so it's uh, a slight disjointed narrative 
because you don't have that kind of poker interplay between two real players. But actually, you get quite an interesting narrative generated um, by just turning the cards over in an unpredictable sequence. Yeah, and then for, and, and then that forces your actions again. So so if there's a uh, if there's a running theme, it's constraining your actions not to one choice because that's not interesting, but to two or three choices because your brain can deal with that simultaneously for two sides. Yeah, yeah, that makes entire sense because um, you don't want that linear game, do you? You want that pop, that wider possibility. Of, of what might happen yeah exactly so in the in the gallic war campaign i've just started then um that's again very much designed along these lines at, at the campaign level so the romans have a deck of cards the germans have a deck of cards there might be um and that might enable you to move units or it might enable you to bring a uh, a neutral tribe to your a neutral uh, tribe to your side or it might mean another uh, a tribe supporting the other side revolts in your favor that kind of thing yeah. So I might be able to choose one of those two options on the card, but I don't know which card is going to be played next, and I don't know who's going to be playing the first card of a turn. Right. So in the actual in the actual campaign so far, the Romans were able to move first, so it makes a lot of sense for them to crush the main Gallic opposition at the time, which is the uh, Helvetia in Switzerland. But it, there was an equal chance of a German card coming up first, which yeah. could have been, say... Um, a, a tribe revolts in their favour in southwest France, and then all of a sudden Caesar's got a more interesting decision. Does he go northeast into Switzerland, or does he try and clear his rear areas first? But if he yeah. if, if he goes to south uh, to southwest France first, then how strong will the Helvetia be by the time he actually gets there? Just just see what I mean. So yeah. so yeah. so by limiting your your strategies to two or three paths maximum and uh, refreshing them at regular interval, intervals. Um, then it means that you as a solo player, you're not trying to plan four four turns ahead on one side and then four turns ahead for the other side, but knowing what, what the other side is going to do. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. constraining those choices to like uh, something that, that a normal human brain can cope with. There's plausible choices, isn't there? But you don't know which one you're going to be faced against, I guess. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not particularly uh, commands and colours player i've played it one or two times but i don't own it or anything but i imagine you could use a similar system uh for playing something like commands and colors so instead of having a choice of six cards then you could uh have the same things but the same cards but have them face down and then you would pick you would only pick the next two and you have to choose between them for instance and then you reshuffle the rest once you once you've chosen one so mechanics like that to enable you to have some kind of meaningful choice but not too much choice at any one moment Right. I mean, I, I take my hat off to you, John, because um, the amount of effort and time that you put into these things is, is just incredible. It's, uh, and the, the thinking that you, you, you're putting into it is it's a real inspiration. I'm going to be directing every listener to your blog to follow <laughs> the uh, Gallic campaign and see how it uh, turns out, and also to look back through... Uh, the years of posts that you've got on there to um, pick up a few tips. Um, so just to move on slightly, um, I'm interested in the fact that you've got such huge armies uh, across varying periods. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that if you buy some figures, you like to think that you're going to get them on the table in 
three to four hours. So what, what's your sort of process of getting the, that bare metal onto the table? What's your painting process and basing process? And how, how do you get that um, enthusiasm and motivation just to power on through figures? Because I, I think I'm right in thinking you haven't got much of a lead pile, have you? No, um, I, I want to. It's not literally true. I have zero lead pile because I have a I have a, a small box of six millimeter spares that I guess I could paint up. Um, yeah. Although there's no particular units or basing for them to go into, and I have a uh, like a sweetie box of twenty eight millimeter stuff that I've uh, I've acquired on the way, but I don't actually. They're not they're not for any particular project, so yeah. I've never got round to painting them up at this point. Um, I may do for some of them uh, uh, at some point. We, sh- we shall see. So yeah. I don't. Ha- it's not literally zero, but it is practically zero. In as good as. It's, yeah, in that in that there's not a, a project I'm working on that I that I'm pinning these figures to do these battles uh, at this date. Yeah. Um, um, so so yes, I'm deciding between um, uh, if I get some Russians from two D six two D six wargaming yeah. to, to start off that, or if I wait for uh, Pony Wars. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not sure which way I'll go to go, but. Um, so what I do is um, I try and I try and think to myself if I uh, when I started it was if I took two weeks off work and I painted eight hours every day could I finish this lead pile mm. and that was like kind of the absolute limit of how many figures I would have at any one time um, after I'd done that for a few years then I kind of brought the time down so it was like no if I took a week off work and really hammered the painting could I do it in a week um, and then I've taken it down to a day. So I try not to buy more figures in one go than if I, if I felt like it. I started at six in the morning, finished at 10 at night, but I would finish, I would finish off my, uh, my lead pile. I never actually do that, yeah. um, but it's, it's, it's to avoid those feelings of, uh, of overwhelm. Because, um, as you know, I've not listened to, uh, to Neil's podcast for ages and ages, I was constantly impressed by how much he bought and then how overwhelmed he felt by having bought it. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so I, I learned from the, the, the recce party there to, yeah. um, to, to, to that, that maybe another, another approach was, um, you know, might be, might be better for me. Well, um, I, I certainly put myself in the, in the Neil Shuck category as opposed to your category, but uh, <laughs> you're, you're quite an inspiration. So I'm making notes as we go on. Yeah. So, 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 so my problem has been the other one. Uh, like Neil's felt bad about um, about troops that he's bought twenty years ago and he's never got around to painting. Yeah. I feel bad about troops I've painted a few years ago, but I've, I haven't, you know, given them a, a really proper run out yet. Right. Um, that, not that there's many troops in that category, I have to say, but um, I'm not sure I've ever got my medieval um, uh, Andalusian army out onto the table yet oh. and i don't think i've ever played i've taken some of the figures for some other games but i've never played a proper game of conan yet even though i painted up all the figures for it okay. so um, <laughs> um but but yeah so so that's like kind of what i try to have a limit on on how much i'm buying so yes. so i don't get that fe- feeling of overwhelm the the end is always in sight yeah um and because the end is always in, in sight that's like a bit of a goal to get it finished. So I can say, actually, by the time I go to Joy of Six or the t- by the time I go to uh, Partizan, um, I know what my lead pile is. I could get rid of it in a day. So actually, I feel I feel justified in buying myself a few nice figures, you know, when, when I see them. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of overall strategy. In terms of, in terms of painting, basically, I, 
um, when I was moving into six mil properly um, in 2007, I read Peter's painting guide. I yeah. printed it out and I did what he said. Over the years, I changed it slightly in that I don't think it produces better results, but it makes it more enjoyable for me to paint. So I use the the grey um, undercoat and then put um, a black wash on it right. rather than rather than spray paint uh, black because, yeah. like I said, not because I think it produces better results. It doesn't. But um, I got a bit tired of, of looking at myself and going, what on earth is that <laughs> on, the, on the back of the Dragoon or yeah. or what, what's that bit, bit of webbing on the – I just – I can't remember. Um, so what, what I find is uh, – is more fun for me to paint and therefore I paint faster, if not better, is to have all those areas that I need to paint in a specific colour in grey and then all the shadows already done in black and yes. I can pick them, up, pick them out better. So it was Do- Dr. Mike in one of his clinics that he, okay. he did at Partizan. He, um, he sort of woke me up into this, this method and, um, and I've, I've adopted it ever since. And like I say, I, I don't think it's better, but, but it's more fun. And more fun in painting equals more, more toy soldiers painted, I think. Yeah, well, it certainly keeps that motivation up. And that harkens back to something that you mentioned earlier on about the process of painting has to be enjoyable, doesn't it? Particularly if you're, if you are entering into a largest project with, and in six months, we're talking hundreds of figures, um, you've got to enjoy it or else you will either drive yourself mad or never get them done. Um, and almost for me, absolutely, the end product doesn't really matter it doesn't matter that my figures might not stand up against somebody else's um and we can i think war gamers as a whole can fall into the trap of looking at glossy magazines and thinking uh they've got to achieve that standard of painting that the kevin dallimores or whoever uh are painting to um and then you get this almost stage fright or you 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 feel as though you're not achieving what you should be doing you, you need to be happy with the process that you've got. Um, and for me, I'm very much a war gamer. I'm not a military modeler. So I, I want, I'm painting figures to play with. I'm painting figures to display. Um, I, I just want to be happy with the end result for myself, not for anybody else. Yeah, very much so. But I think I'd also add that, that it, it's, again, it's something that, that you know what you need to do. So if you know that to really enjoy a game, it has to be figures that would that could grace white dwarf without shame. Mm. Then, then, then you have to pin to that standard because otherwise you won't enjoy it. Yeah. What? Where I think people go go wrong is thinking I can a pin to that standard and b um, put on Waterloo using Grand Manor. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Th- 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 those those two objectives imply that you are Michael Perry. Yes. <laughs> if you're and if you're not him. And you don't think you can make yourself him, then then why are you torturing yourself? Yeah, you know, you know, there's plenty of brilliant rules out there for um for like low figure counts. Yeah. So if that's what you love, then then do that. Spend spend an hour on each figure and really enjoy playing those 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 games that have uh ten, twelve, maximum twenty figures aside. Yeah. And 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 love that. Enjoy the variety. Do it. You know, play seven TV a lot. And you will have a great time. Yes. Um, it's it's when you when you're fundamentally setting yourself goals, which if if you heard someone else say them, you would just say, "Mate, go go to the pub, have a drink, <laughs> re, 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 rethink 
because because not only is it not going to work, it can't conceivably work. Yeah. And, and I think I think that's where some people go wrong. Yeah, and I think we come back to the idea of this lead mountain that I think ninety nine percent of gamers got. I think you're you're in the one percent, John, because <laughs> everybody I know and I've ever spoken to over a thirty five year history of in, uh, being in this hobby has, has got a, a lead mountain that's uh, you know half their own body weight, <laughs> not just a shoebox of some odds and ends. <laughs> That we might get around to at some point. So, um, I, and I think you do. It's very easy, isn't it? It's a it's a strange hobby, I think, because if you're a golfer and you want a new set of golf clubs, you go out and buy a new set of golf clubs. You don't then put them in the loft and never look at them for six months or two years, do you? You <laughs> you use them. Whereas war gamers, we will go out and spend two hundred quid on a new project. And then put them in the loft or in the cupboard, and they'll never see the light of day again because there's some new shiny project that's come along, whether it's pirates or dark East Africa or whatever. We um, we're a strange breed. Well, most of us are. Not you. You aren't, John. You're clear. <laughs> You're booking that trend. Well, but I think you know all of us are a, a strange breed to, to to some extent because even if I even if I looked at my my own gaming, then. I've probably got more rule sets than I could ever realistically put, realistically right. play with. And Thank goodness I, you've redeemed yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you if you thought about you know how, how much time do I genuinely have for painting? How much time do I genuinely have for playing? Then actually the fifteen year olds who play Warhammer Forty K probably got it spot on. <laughs> you, you know, buy, buy two armies, paint them quite nicely, uh, play them down the club twice a week, and you know you have got the absolute absolute optimum. Uh, output for your inputs and yes. um, I don't know many many people who are historical gamers who are anywhere near that kind of level and yeah. um, and to and to and we you know put in put in quite a lot of time and effort and, and money in some cases um, put you know getting these large collections together to to give ourselves options I think is the kindest way of putting it um, but if we if we needed to um, you could you could concentrate on the eastern front with uh, a platoon's worth of stuff on every side, and never lack things to gain. Yeah, yeah, true. I agree with that. And again, we come back to one of the ben- benefits of six mil gaming, in that it it will allow you that diversification across various periods that you couldn't probably achieve to any great extent. And listen, I know there's people out mm. there with massive collections across many periods in 28 mil and they're all professionally painted but for the average war gamer uh, to be able to play across several periods and have the finances to fund that and the time to paint the figures because let's face it it's a lot quicker to paint a six mil figure than it is a 28 mil figure um you can get that end result can't you and you're I've made some notes here John and I'm going to just see if I can (laughs) use that as a a benchmark for myself to think about future purchases because well fortunately backers are on a on on the lockdown aren't they and I think the next uh shopping cart opens in early August and it's my 50th birthday in August so there's some serendipity there but I, the initial thought was to go and uh, treat myself with it being my 50th birthday. But now I'm thinking, oh, maybe not. I'll just buy enough that I can paint in one day. <laughs> well, it's, it, 
it's it's a rule that served me well. I don't think it'll be for for everyone, no. and and I think that um, some people will look at it, and 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 this is true if you're buying some very niche stuff. Um, that if I don't buy it today, then it may be gone forever. Therefore, I need to buy it today, no matter what. And, yes. and I and, and I and I totally get that because if you're you know, if you're an old hammer. Uh, collector then you 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 just have to do that you can't do it a- any other way so i'm certainly not saying my way is better but um but it works for me because i never ever feel um overwhelmed by having a cupboard full of stuff that would take me four years to paint um even if i painted every day and did nothing else yeah. um I-, I would find that difficult so i don't do it having said all that um i was impressed by the number of um tiger twos that you had on display <laughs> yeah um <laughs> that 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 was that was the i don't know the virtues of the vices of of buying from ebay um, right okay. the, all almost all my other stuff is um is you know shop bought and i painted it but a lot of my my world war ii stuff was actually collected from from ebay most of it not painted um you know people just ditching bits of their collections and what have you um so when i was putting together that world war ii collection then um i kind of didn't interrogate uh, you know collections too hard it was just like no no i'm not quite sure what i need yet so i'll i'll bring it in you know lock stock um it's coming in cheap i won't worry and um i kind of learned from that actually i don't think i would do it again um when am I ever going to put a genuine full Tiger Two Battalion out on the table with the rules I have? Never. I, 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 I can't. I can't see a situation where I would do it. Even not if even I in flames of war. Um, especially not in flame in flames of war. <laughs> Though um, I have to say, I quite like flames of war as a rule set. I think it works a lot better in six than it does in fifteen right. um, because you get the spaces right, and then there's there's the room to manoeuvre and, and and what and what have you. Um, but you know it's okay. But it's a it's a scale thing, really. If you, if you want to play with Tiger Twos, then you're saying you want a game where tanks can kill other tanks at very very large ranges, yeah. and that means that you need to repre- represent that with you know quite a lot of real estate. If you have like me, haven't got that much real estate, then you're more likely to say actually I'll play Spearhead instead. Yeah, and and you know bring those ranges down more manageable. But then all of a sudden, I haven't got a Tiger Two battalion. I've got like two divisions worth of Tiger Twos. So, yeah. Yeah. so actually, I could have probably got by with maybe a company. I think um, as the, as the outside limit. But you know, it's uh, it, not not a biggie. <laughs> but but it's a, a, a small lesson learned, I think. Yes, yeah, but it was impressive all the same. <laughs> Uh, John, we're uh, nearly on two hours now. Um, when I said, "Have you got a spare hour?" So <laughs> I do apologise for keeping you for so long. Um, the uh, you you may be aware of this if you've listened listened to past um, podcasts that the one request I have well I've got two requests actually. One is that uh, you agree to come back on the show at some point in the future. Uh, for another chat because it's been fascinating uh, hearing about your own approach to six mil gaming and uh, campaign games and and the blog but the the other one is that you um, have to leave a book in the god's own scale virtual library which is either a military history book a war gaming book pretty much what you want really as long as it's not jackie collins um 
So I don't know if you've had a think about it or I'm just going to drop it on you now and <laughs> ramble in a little bit just to give you some time to think. Uh, but uh, have you got a suggestion or have, have you got a book that you would like to deposit in the God's Own Scale live, virtual library? Um, yes, I have, actually. I, I, I did give it some thought. Um, and my, uh, my nomination is a book called, well, it was originally called um, Brains and Bullets. I believe that in the second edition it was re renamed War Games. Um, it's not about wargaming. It's about tactical psychology, uh, about how... Uh, how combat troops think, how it works at the um, at the sharp end, yeah. and I have I have not come across a better book um, to explain how the mechanics of this actually work. Um, and I would recommend it to well to any any gamer at all, but especially to those interested in uh, modern and twentieth century warfare. So, um, so the second version of it was called what? Sorry, it, it's called it's called War Games. Oh, okay. Um, I right. believe it's I believe it's two words rather than one. Um, yeah by leo murray that's a pseudonym but that's the name it's uh, it's published under right Just make a note of that that will sit uh, very handily on the god's own scale virtual library which is getting quite a collection now of books on it so i think that's the first book looking at psychological uh, the psychological side of things so thanks very much for that contribution uh, John, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know we've communicated, as I've said earlier, over email about getting you onto the show. Um, and uh, it, it's been great. I've, I've really found it fascinating to hear about your own approach to gaming and uh, Six Mill and how you uh, manage your own games. So uh, thanks very much for your time. Um, you you've mentioned Joe Six and Partisan. Do you get round to some of the shows? Well, obviously, out when when shows happen. But do you manage to get round to a few of the shows? Yeah, I do. I, I go to most of the ones, or try to get to most of the ones in the East Midlands area, um, yeah. going into South Yorkshire. So um, Joy of Six definitely. I normally go to both Partisans uh, and Hammerhead well, when I when I can. Uh, like. I mentioned before I have quite a mobile lifestyle so so yeah. often often work uh, conflicts with the dates but um I generally try to get to uh, to get to those when there was a show in Derby then Donington then I would uh, get to that I went to yes. the Robin show when that oh, was, yes. that was up if if that comes uh, comes back uh, I will definitely be at that one um sometimes I go to Border River because um, that's where I'm from uh, from originally and yeah. it's some it sometimes just so happens that the day I'm visiting relatives is the day that that happens to be on. It's funny how these coincidences <laughs> happen, isn't it? <laughs> chance and serendipity. Yes. You, can't, yeah. you, you cannot argue with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so those, those would be the, the, the main ones. Um, I don't, it, it's, been, it's been a long time since I've got uh, further afield than that for a show. Um, j just because, you know, most of what I, I would want to be covered is covered there. And yes. especially at the Joy of Six, you know, since that's... Um, since that's been instituted, that's become a, a real red letter day for me because yeah. that covers in one place nearly everything that I'd be really interested in. And if um, Adler and the regular start turning up, then that would be pretty much everything that I would uh, that I'd be interested in. So um, yeah, it's it's become a uh, it's become a real fixture on the on the calendar. Um, I know um, I know Peter mentions this, but but perhaps people might not quite believe it, but it's genuinely the only show in the calendar where nearly everyone stays till closing time and yeah. after. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And uh, it's a real, 
it's really become something larger than I think what Peter might have first envisaged uh, in the fact that you've got people there not only with a common interest in wargaming but in a particular kind of wargaming and you're right that the, the hadn't been to one for a couple of years actually but last, I went last year and there uh, people were still hanging around at four half past four in the afternoon whereas most shows die off after lunchtime these days don't they so uh, it's a real testament to what what a good product uh, Peter is putting out there. So it, it, um, it is, it's, but it's all. I think it's also a conceptual thing that when you, the, the bigger shows have a bit of everything. Yeah, that that's what they're in for. But uh, on any given day, then I'm probably not so interested in absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, whereas if I am a six mil gamer, then and there's a show which is full of six millimeter stuff, then. I will stay at that show for longer because it's more kind of tightly, tightly aimed at, uh, at me. Um, yes. So, so that's certainly not to you know, condemn partisan or harm, which I, which I absolutely love. I think yeah. it's just a structural thing about it. Um, if you, if you like uh, Warhammer games and you go to games day, then you are probably going to stay all day because yes. it, it is full of, of something that's really targeted for you. Whereas Joy of Six is very much targeted, targeted uh, at me. And, yeah. and I think that a lot of people, you know, go on that, on that basis and stay on that basis because you want to talk to literally every single trader and you want yeah. to talk, you want to speak to literally every single, um, every single demonstrator and yeah. play every participation game. Whereas um, in a normal show, then you'll tend to do a little little smorgasbord, a few traders, a few games, maybe have a go at one of the participa- participation games, and then, yeah, sort of by two, half two, if you've got there at 10 o'clock, yeah, you feel it's about time to go to go and um, see how much damage has been done to the wallet and yeah. how many how many extra peaks on the lead mountain. Um, yes. But 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 the joy of six, it's it's literally, can I afford to? not talk to this person and then nip off to this trade stand or do i need to do it the other way around and yeah. uh, and that makes for a very full day absolutely mate yeah well hopefully in the future when um uh these shows are back on the road we'll uh, we'll meet up face to face and and share a coffee and uh, and uh, put the world to rights uh, <laughs> as regards six mil gaming but mate thanks very much for your time it's been an absolute blast um I'm not even going to ask you if you're going to come on next time. I'm going to assume that you will respond in the positive <laughs> because it's been that fascinating. And there's plenty of other things that we could be uh, talking about as well. We've just scratched the surface, I think. But uh, I hope you've enjoyed it, John. And uh, I've kept you now over two hours. So I'll, uh, I'll let you get off to your family and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, thanks very much, John. Really appreciate it coming on the show. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, yes, uh, in the future, give me give me a few time to a little time to develop the project a bit, and then uh, yeah, I'd love to come back on. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that chat with John. I thoroughly enjoyed it listening to his six mil gaming, his thoughts on the hobby, 
and uh, the blog and the campaigns. So I thought that was really great, and I, I will look forward to having him back on the podcast. Okay, so uh, just a quick hobby update. Um, if you follow me on the Twitters, you will see that I've now finished the figures uh, for the Germans and the British to refight the Mons scenario from Great War Spearhead. I've now ordered all of the buildings that I require to populate the landscape that they're going to fight over. So I'm hoping that that project is very close to completion now, as much as any project can be fully completed. I mentioned at the start of the podcast just to touch on something in the Great War survey, and that's on how much we all spend in this hobby. Um, We are vast consumers of product. Um, We all have, or the vast majority of us, John uh, to one side, have lead mountains that uh, have cost significant amount of money to uh, accrue and one has to wonder the value for money that we get out of it sometimes so I thought what I'll do is I've answered the Great War survey with an estimate of how much I spend in a 12-month period and how much I anticipate to spend in the next 12 months but it's really just uh, sticking a finger in the air. I've, I've no idea what the sum is. I suspect it would scare me if I knew the actual sum. So as of the 1st of August, it's the 5th of August as I record this, and hopefully it will be released, this podcast will be released today. As of the 1st, I've started to document every penny that I've spent uh, uh, from the 1st, and I've already, just on the little things, the the bits of paint, their buildings, six mil buildings at that, that cost about £2.50, £3 each, uh, a couple of books. Um, it's it's amazing how much it adds up on top of the figures that we all um, take for granted as being the, the most expensive part of the hobby. Well, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see where that goes and it'll be interesting for me to track just how much it is that I spend this I am not a man of uh, vast wealth Um, I am what I would describe as a middle income earner um, who spends money on his hobby uh, to enjoy it Uh, so yeah I'll be interested to see where it goes with that but um, I'll I'll keep you updated as to the outcome I have now submitted at last, and Peter will be very pleased about this, I've now submitted my game for Joyous 6 2021, which will be the Tietval scenario from Great War Spearhead. So I'm looking forward, having now come very close to finishing the Mons game, I very much look forward to cracking on with that. The Antietam project is now just starting to gain some traction. And the Napoleonic Austrians are done. Certainly the order of battle for the Battle of Cecile in 1809 using the Blücher rules order of battle. You may have also noticed I'm looking at a project in 2 mil, having spoken to Mark Backhouse in previous episode. That will be for the Battle of Austerlitz. I've now got all of the 2 mil figures for that or the strips of figures for that so I'll keep you updated as that progress 
and also an upcoming interview will be with Peter Riley who I spoke to I think in episode 2 of the podcast about a couple of projects that he's got on the go and one of which is a book on writing rules which I think is coming close to being ready for publication and that has inspired me to my super secret project codename Dork's Rift so I'll keep you updated on that um, across the Twitters as well so I've got lots going on in the hobby uh, a lot in 6mail I'm doing one or two other bits as well in science fiction and fantasy in the larger scales but we won't talk too much about that just at the moment and try to keep on track as a 6mil podcast or 6mil and smaller right so um, I think that's about all for this week and this show episode 13 as I record this this is the 5th of August tomorrow morning I'm speaking to Andy from Heroics and Ross and as far as I'm aware that will be the first time he's appeared on a podcast or anybody from Heroics and Ross has appeared on a podcast and that will be the start, I hope, of a small series where I speak to the uh, other manufacturers. I know I've speak, spoken to Peter Berry a couple of times now, um, principally because that's a bit Bacchus produced the vast majority of the figures that I use at the moment. But I do want to make sure I cast the net wider and get in touch with some of the other manufacturers and producers of 6mm goodness. So Heroics and Ross... Uh, we'll be uh, interviewed tomorrow. Um, I'm looking to reach out to Adler in the future, very near future, hopefully, and Ian Kaya to regular miniatures. Uh, I'm still trying to get in touch with Rapier, and of course, there's others out there like Scotia, and also the building and scenery manufacturers. So, lots more to come. Uh, I've got a very full schedule of interviews lined up uh, for the future, so I hope that you'll stick with me and listen in to what I've got in store. So, as ever, I'm going to close out the episode now and say be nice to one another, enjoy your games, and, of course, keep talking about six. Goodbye, 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 